You can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew 14, Matthew chapter 14. Last week we looked at a saint, a sinner, and a savior, and today we're going to look a little more at the savior aspect of that, and he definitely is a compassionate savior as we come to our text here today. In our study, we come to the high point, really, of Christ's ministry. Um, It's a familiar account. We've all probably heard stories about it in Sunday school. We've heard stories about it. We've read about it in the Bible, the feeding of the 5,000. I like to call it the feeding of the 5,000 plus because there was a lot more people, probably more like 25 or 30,000 people there, uh, 5,000 men. And this is the particular miracle that is really recorded. It's the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. And so it's definitely unique in that sense. So there's definitely something that the Lord wants us to see as we look at this this morning. Um, Each writer, as he includes this miracle, he also puts it at the proper time in the climax of Christ's life and ministry. And uh, remember, when he began his ministry here in Galilee, um, he sought the public. He went out and he gathered crowds and and, uh, they came to him in hordes. He went to the populace of the cities, and he wanted to uh, make known to them his name in God's kingdom to demonstrate his power through mighty works. We saw all those. He wanted to teach them the words concerning the kingdom of God in heaven. And so he sought open places. He sought crowds to surround him. He desired that publicity. Um, He wanted to make himself manifest as the Savior, as the Messiah. And as he began to do that, we know what happened, right? The religious leaders of Jesus' day, one by one, kind of began to reject him and his claim of kingship and being the Messiah. And the hostility began to rise, and it increasingly got worse and worse and worse the more publicity Christ sought. And so as we come to this particular miracle this morning in the text of Matthew 14, um, it reaches really a pinnacle in Christ's ministry. And he, uh, at the end of this, you're going to see that the the men, uh, the people who were affected by this miracle, they actually tried to force him. They wanted to take him by force and make him their king, it says in the Gospel of John. And so this crowd is following the Messiah, the king, and they're not all of them are true followers. He has his disciples, but he also has people trailing along who are just fascinated. It would be like if we had some miracle worker down on Veterans Boulevard uh, in front of Kaiser Hospital healing people. Wouldn't you want to go down and see it? Oh, look at this guy. He's got a broken leg. Zap. He's healed. Oh, look at this person. They're blind. Zap. They can see. Oh, this person's near dead. Rise up and walk. And they walk out of the hospital. Wouldn't that be incredible? I'd want to go down and see it. I just want to go and check it out. So you can imagine all these people coming and following Christ because he was healing thousands and thousands of people. He basically obliterated any kind of disease and sickness in the region where he went. And they're in awe of him. And this is the high point of his ministry. And from this point on, we basically see a change. It says there in verse 13 of our text, where we left off last week after the the story of the murder of John the Baptist. It says, when Jesus heard of it, heard of John the Baptist's death, it says, he departed from there by boat to a deserted deserted place by himself. So we see a change. All of a sudden, Christ is withdrawing. He's not running to the crowds anymore. He's withdrawing from the crowds. And the change has been coming ever since Jesus spoke his warning to the cities in Galilee in chapter 11. You remember that? He denounced them for their failure to repent and turn to him. He warned them that it would be more bearable for the wicked cities of Tyre and Sidon and Sodom on the day of judgment than it was for them. Remember that? 
in verses 20 and 24 of chapter 11. And chapter 12 is almost entirely about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And he called them a brood of vipers. So you can just kind of sense this tension building. The chief representatives of that wicked and adulterous generation that asked for a sign but will not come to faith. He didn't mince any words with them. And after this, Jesus began to teach in parables. All of a sudden, he begins to teach in parables, saying, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven must be kept from those whose hearts are callous, he said. So you see this gradual withdrawing, and here it's, it's actually really beginning physically. He begins to physically withdraw himself. At the end of that chapter 13, he's rejected by the people of his own home city, Nazareth. And at the chapter, beginning of chapter 14, we read of Herod's murder. And it's at that point when he heard that, that he went away to a desolate place. Now, there's not only a uh, religious hostility here from the Pharisees, and this is just kind of all introduction here for you, and the religious leaders... But there's also a political hostility going on, even amongst the crowds. Like I said, at the end of, in John, it says that after they saw this miracle, he fed all these people. They wanted to forcibly make him their king. They wanted to take him by force. And it says Christ withdrew once again. So it's clear here that even those who see him as king, there's some kind of shallowness to their following. They're following more out of not genuine faith, but of, hey, what's he going to do today? He's just a popular kind of guy. He's doing all this stuff and there's this tension in the air and everybody wants to see what, what's going to happen next. And he's under threat by his enemies, the Pharisees and the Herodians. And uh, even his would-be friends, the crowd, eventually, as I say, turn on him. In John 18, he says to them, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words... I'm not going to bow to the demands and the terms of men's kingdom here on earth because I'm not of this world. So all these pressures are coming to a point. And it marks his time of departure and seclusion. And uh, you'll see in this gospel, after this point in time, basically a lot of what happens just happens with him and his disciples. The crowds become less and less frequent. He's not seeking out the crowds as much anymore. And uh, you would think that at some point, at this point, Jesus would have no more dealings with the crowds. Think about it. He just heard about the murder of his friend John the Baptist, his forerunner. And we see that in the text, as I read it for you, you're going to see that Christ doesn't Hey, somebody just died in my family. You know, I got a, <laughs> my friend died. I'm a, I, I can't deal with you people right now. You see the compassion of Christ come out, and it's a model for us. Well, let's read the text for us, and then we'll look at it and basically draw two, three, three or four things out of it. So, beginning in verse 13 of Matthew 14. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude. And he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves some food. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled And they took up twelve baskets full of fragments that remained. 
Now when those who had eaten were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. So you see here, at this point in life, Christ had every right to kind of just get away to a remote area and not do ministry, not do anything. He was, basically, he withdrew, it tells us, to a, a north, uh, a, a, a northeastern corner of the Sea of Galilee, not far from the, the town of uh, Bethsaida. And he crossed over to the western side by boat, and he, he wanted to be alone basically with his disciples. That was the plan. But the people saw him going. They saw the disciples going, and they walked around the lake so that by the time he got to the other side, guess who was there? <laughs> the whole crowd. They were waiting for him when he landed. And it says in verse 14 that when he went out and he saw the great multitude, he was moved with compassion for them. That's what I want us to look at this morning. Um, the compassion of Christ. He had compassion for them, and he not only had compassion, but it says he healed their sick. And so he sets the stage here, Matthew does, for the feeding of these 5,000 plus individuals, families. Um, and you can read the account of this miracle in the other Gospels, and they all give a little take, a little different take on the whole thing. Uh, John's version is the most independent and the most detailed. As a matter of fact, uh, we're going to find out that, that John points out to us that it was before the Jewish Passover, and he follows his account with Jesus' discourse on the bread of life. But you stop and you think that here... Jesus is this, almost this new Moses feeding the people. Spiritual food. And if they eat, they will live forever. John's account ends with Peter's double testimony where he says there, you have the words of eternal life. We believe that you, and know that you are the Holy One sent from God. Well, let's look at a couple aspects of this little story. First of all, let's look at the hungry people. The hungry people. It says in verse 13 that they sought him out. They sought him out. He departed to a desert, but the multitudes heard it. They followed him. And like I said, why they were following him, it wasn't because they were hungry. Jesus didn't announce that he was going to go have a big banquet on the other side of the lake, come on over for a big barbecue or whatever. That wasn't the idea here. They didn't know what was going to happen, but they sought after him. But it's interesting that when we look at what these people are seeking, they're not necessarily seeking the face of the Savior. They're seeking his hand. They're seeking, what can you do for me today, Jesus? Oh, no, he's getting in a boat. He's going to the other side. I still have some needs that aren't met. I've got to run around the lake and meet him on the other side. Maybe he'll meet him over there. And that's very much, it parallels our Christianity today in the world in which we live. It's very much about our felt needs. That's what people are told. What can Jesus do for me? You say that this guy's a savior and that he's going to come and forgive all my sins, but what's he really going to do for me? Will he fill up my bank account? Will he give me a new job? Will he help me with my kids? Will he help me with my marriage? What's he going to do with me? for me? And so they sought after him, but they sought after his hand, not his face. They weren't there to worship him. They were there to get something from him. And in a consumer-driven society today, that's not too far from where we're at, beloved. When's the last time you had a time with the Lord just to worship Him? Just to worship Him. Just to simply get down with His Word and just worship before Him. Usually we go to prayer because we have needs or we have need of something. Or we're praying for somebody who's sick or we're doing something. Something's not right in our life, so we're driven to God. After all, we're a Christian. That's where we would go. Well, these people sought his hand, not his face. But something about them stirred him. It says in verse 14, when Jesus went out and saw a great multitude, it says he was moved with compassion. That has the idea that he was moved in the innermost parts. He really, it wasn't just like, oh, these poor people. No. He really 
felt their pain, as someone else said. But he really did. And we see his compassion over and over and over and over again throughout the Gospels. We saw it back in uh, chapter 9 of Matthew, verse 36. It says there, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like a sheep having no shepherd. You know, if there's one thing that should drive us to our knees and drive us to this lost and dying world is the fact that they are just that, lost and dying without a shepherd. They have no hope outside of Christ. We have the hope. We have the answer for them. Whether they'll hear it or not, that's up to them. But we're called to go and share it with them. So when Jesus saw these people, they stirred him in, 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 his, in his innermost being. And we see in this verse our Lord's compassion, but we also see our Lord's concern. See, there's one thing for having compassion for somebody, right? Oh, that poor guy, look at it. He's holding the sign up and he has no food at the red light. What a shame as we drive to um, wherever and eat. I know there's a lot of illegitimate needs out there, but we shouldn't just turn a callous heart to them. We should be concerned. See, concern takes compassion and puts it into action. You can feel sorry for somebody all day long, but that's not going to help them until you're willing to literally, physically reach out and help them. And that's what Christ did. Ultimately, Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is what? Lost. That which is lost. It's so important that we understand that Christ came to save those people who needed saving. And the Bible says very clearly that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. All of our, uh, we have gone astray. We've, we've been led down the wrong path. And so when Christ says he comes to save that which is lost, you have to come to a point in time where you realize, wait a minute. Am I hungry for God? I mean, these people were in sad shape when he looked at them. And he felt sorry for them. He had compassion for them. And that compassion moved him into action. I mean, we're in a generation, literally, that's never satisfied, right? I mean, that's just how it is. We want to learn... um, about and all this stuff and, and grow, grow, grow and all these things, but we're never really satisfied. And today I want you to kind of just step away from where we live and put yourself back in this time and think about the chapter we just uh, started here with this big festival with Herod, this big party, this big drunken orgy, basically, birthday party, and ended with the murder of John the Baptist. Well, here's another banquet, and I want to contrast these two banquets for you. Two banquets that happened. And it's interesting because God puts them right there side by side for us to see. When you look at the contrast between Herod's feast and Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, you see the one of Herod was given by a king in a palace. But Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 was done by this preacher out in the middle of the desert. Herod was only, his party was only for the important people. I mean, it was his birthday party. But Jesus' feast was for the common people. Herod focused, his event focused on man and his pleasure, mainly himself. Remember that story, it ended with a young girl dancing in front of them, and it says that they were pleased, and it meant sexually aroused. But in Jesus' banquet, basically it was focused on God and his purpose. Herod's was a drunken orgy. Jesus was a, just a country meal. Herod's was for the worldly and for this world only, but Jesus kind of gave a foretaste of what was going to come. You look at Herod's, and it ended with the murder of John the Baptist. And yet, Jesus' banquet ends with feeding those who had no food. 
I mean, what a contrast between the two. And you say, well, why is, there, why is that important? Why is that such an important thing to point out? Well, I ask myself, why is there a contrast? The answer is this. Herod cared but no one, for no one but himself. His actions were determined by his lust for power and his desire to save face before his friends. That's how he got in the predicament. While Jesus, it says, he cared for other people to the point of giving his own life. Here we see Jesus taking time to heal, to teach, and to feed these people. Even though his first desire was what? He wanted to be alone. He wanted to go through some grieving. He wanted to be with his disciples and teach them. But Jesus' compassion for the masses just comes out. He can't help himself. And the first clear lesson of this story is that Jesus cares. And he he not only cared for them, but he cares for you. He cares for you, beloved. He cares for me. Even though most of the most powerful people in the world do not. It's funny, we get these calls all the time from political organizations at our house. Would you be willing to give such and such party so much money? I always want to say, look, that, that, that person is a lot richer than I am. No, <laughs> click. You know, that's, come on. It's kind of crazy. They don't know me. But boy, you think you just got a message, a personal message from this guy when you listen to it on the, on the machine. That's what they want you to think. But see, even though nobody cares about us, who's rich and powerful and, and in this world, you know what Christ does? Um, and, and that's an important point to make. You know, your coworkers probably don't care a great deal about you. They work with you, they're your friends, but they don't, you know, they don't go home thinking of you at night, hopefully. If you do, if they do, you've got a problem. I mean, even your friends sometimes are interested, you know, more in themselves and their own relationships and their own families or whatever and their own problems than they are about your problems. I mean, they'll listen to you, but at the end of the day, you're going to go to your house and, and you know, they're going to go to their house and, and that's just the way it is. So why do we spend so much time worrying about what other people think and so little time bringing our cares and our needs to Christ? Because he's the only one that really, really cares. There's a hymn that Joseph Sheevan wrote back in 1855, and it asks a good question. And it provides the correct answer, and you'll recognize the hymn. It says, Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge? Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. That's good advice. So many times we're running to other human beings with our problems when we should be running to the Lord. When we bring our problems to Jesus, we bring them to one who not only cares about us and is compassionate, but he also understands and he's able to help us in our time of need. Look over at 1 Peter chapter 5. Just an encouraging verse, and then we'll move on to the next point. 1 Peter chapter 5. This is one of the verses I turn to when I'm concerned about something. Verse 6 is good too. Good starting place. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And then he says this, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you casting means to throw something on something else it's it's like if i was going to lay on the couch and it was cold at night i'd cast a blanket down first and then lay on the on the blanket so i could stay warm that's what this means it means literally taking your care your concern and laying it on christ not still holding on to it Not still worrying about it, 
And the reason that we would do such a thing is because he says there, he what? He cares for you. He cares for you. That's a very important point to get in the day in which we live. Because not a lot of people care about a lot of things today. But Christ, I know, cares for me. And that's important. And we need to be reminded of that continually. So we see this group of hungry people. And I want to ask you this morning, are you hungry? Maybe not for food. Maybe you are for food. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, what am I going to have for lunch? Hurry up. You know, I don't know. But I'm talking spiritually. Or have you topped out spiritually? Yeah, I've heard that. Been through that study. Done this. Done that. I don't need to do this. I don't need to do that. Is that the attitude you carry around? You're just too full? (laughs) I think of this physically. When I get hungry and I eat, the way I'm going to get hungry again is what? Go do something, right? Go, go expend some energy. Go exercise or go do some work or do something physical to burn those calories. So then all of a sudden my stomach starts saying, hey, you need to put some more in here. You get hungry again. So many times in churches we find ourselves gorging at the table of the Word of God and gorging on Bible studies and gorging on Christian TV and gorging on Christian radio. And, and all those things are good to a, a certain extent. But the reason we're not hungry is because we're not doing anything. We're not ministering for the Lord. We come to church, put it in a little box, and then we walk out these doors, and then we enter another little box, and the two never meet. See, I believe the biblical sense of a church that's concerned for a lost and dying world, the thing to do is not to have you know, a big tent meeting and have a a revival Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday and invite some evangelist here and, and invite a bunch of people here and have a big meeting. That's not what we're called to do as the church. If that happens, that's fine. But that's not what we're called to do. It's very clear what we're called to do. As a church, we're called to come together and be built up in our faith through the teaching of the Word of God and then what? Exit this place into that lost and dying, dirty, sinful world with the goal of sharing Christ, sharing the gospel, both with our life and with our lips. But so many times we leave here and nothing happens between now and next Sunday. Then we come back, sit down at the table, eat again here, and then we leave. And after a while, we're just like, I'm not even hungry anymore. So our personal devotion time goes by the wayside. Personal prayer time goes by the wayside. And that's just the way it is in the life that we live today. People are busy. And God always gets the short end of the stick for whatever reason. Bill Heibel said that if you're too busy not to pray, then you're just too busy. You know, um, I think that that's an important concept that we have to get in our, our minds. That coming once a week and doing church is not the answer to our Christian life. This is just kind of the little explanation point at the end of a week. That's why the church gathers together, to share our lives one with another, to interlock our lives so that we can, hey, how's this going? How's that going? Whatever. Oh, yeah, you know, the Lord showed me this week. I was in this study. And And you, you build each other up. That's what we're called to do. If you look in the New Testament over and over again, build each other up, build each other up, edify one another, edify one another. It's not about edifying yourself. It's not about sitting home in front of the TV and watching just Bible study after Bible study and soaking it all in and saying, oh, that was so good. I'm just so satisfied. I think I'll just doze off now. That's not what it's about. And yet, here we see people who were hungry. They were physically following Christ. And they were even, you know, whether they're following him for the wrong reason or not, they knew that he could do something for them. We need to remember, beloved, that we should be a hungry people, that we should want to strive after God with every fiber of our being every day of the week, not just on Sundays. Are you searching after him? Are you still enthralled with the word? Do you open it up and just, wow, I can't believe it. This is God's own personal copy of his word to me. How exciting that should be. You need to be reminded of that. 
And when we have that intimate relationship, what's going to happen when the anxiety and the worry comes and the hunger comes? Where are we going to go? We're going to go right back to the Lord. We're going to cast it right on him because we know he's proven over and over again that he can meet those needs. Well, the second thing here is the helplessness of the disciples. Not only the hungry crowd, the hungry people, but the helplessness of the disciples. Look at verse 15, and you see the scope of this problem. It says, When it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Um, then the, send the disciples away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves some food. Uh, over in John, the Gospel of John, the account there is a little more detailed, as I said. John 6, it says, After these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, then a great multitude following him, because they, were, they saw the, his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and he sat with his disciples. Verse 4, it tells us that it was the Passover, a few day, a feast of the uh, Jews was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, look at what he does. He said to Philip, see this isn't in the other text, but it is in this text. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread? that these may eat. But look at what it says. But this he said to what? To test him. For he himself knew what he would do. He wanted to bring his disciples into a helpless situation so that he could provide the answer. Verse 7 says, Philip said to him, well, you know what, 200 denarii, or eight months' wages, basically, Worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. In other words, Philip is looking at this situation, and he's not feeling very good about it. I mean, these are talking thousands of people. We are probably talking 25, 30,000 people are there. It's late in the day. They're out in the desert. They're out in the, the wilderness, away from the city. They don't have anything there to feed them. I mean, you know, you're... You could potentially be talking about a riot if their needs weren't met. That was the scope of the problem. And then you look at the, the enormous crowd and all that, but then you look at the smallness of the provision in verse 16. It says, But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. That's an interesting. We, we don't really do that justice in the English language. First of all, you have to understand that one commentator says that he probably told Philip this a little earlier in the day. In other words, it was getting later, but it wasn't feeding time yet. And he kind of pointed out to Philip, hey, what are we going to do here? And he gave Philip some time to think about this. And he probably went back and talked to the other guys. And they didn't know what, they couldn't come up with an answer. I mean, we're talking about a lot of people here. And they didn't quite know what to do. It points out their helplessness. And then there is a provision. They do come up with a plan. It says that uh, the first plan was just send them away. (laughs) You know, just get rid of them, Jesus. Just tell them to go back to town. I mean, what, what are you thinking? I mean, this is crazy. 25,000 people, there's 12 of us, and we don't have any need. How are we going to feed all these people? Just send them away. And Jesus says, they don't need to go away. And then in the Greek it says, you. You. You give them something to eat. Almost as if he's pointing at the 12. Saying, come on, you guys, deal with this. I think we've all been there in our lives at a point in time where we felt that we had to perform, we had to bring something to the table, we had to do something, and yet we felt totally inadequate to do it. Points out their helplessness. 
I mean, it was beyond their ability. It was beyond their reach to feed these people. They didn't know what to do. The task was beyond their logic, beyond their reason. verse in Jeremiah chapter 33 comes to mind. It says, verse 3, Call to me and I will answer you, and I will tell you great mighty things which you do not know. See, when we go to the Lord, sometimes we already have in our mind the answer that God is going to give us, right? I mean, we just do. We go and we say, oh Lord, you know, we pray for this. Pray that my marriage would grow stronger. And we think, well, Somehow God's going to just bring us closer together and we'll just be one and live in total bliss. Then you talk to the couple that prayed that prayer and all of a sudden the husband had a stroke, can't even wipe the spit from his chin as he drools like a little baby. And they're praying, God, is this the answer? This isn't what we wanted. But they're both Christians. They trust in God. They call out to God for grace and mercy and even healing, but nothing happens. And for 10 years, that's how they live their lives. And at the funeral of that husband, the wife is able to stand at his memorial service as he goes home to be with the Lord and to tell the people that this is the best thing that ever happened to us. We have been so close these past 10 years. Has it been hard? Definitely. Was this the answer we were thinking? No. But you know what? I wouldn't go back. We could go around the room, beloved, and you could all give your account of a story similar to that in your own life. Maybe not to that extent. But you know what? When we pray and we ask God, are we truly asking him out of a helpless heart? Or do we got things all worked out and we're just asking him to rubber stamp it? We have to come to the point where we realize that we can do nothing. That's what Jesus is pointing out to his disciples here. We can do nothing. In spiritual matters, we can do nothing apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said this himself in John 15, 5. He says, if a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. And then he says this, apart from me, you don't got nothing. Nada, zero, zilch, nothing. In one way or another, each of the Gospels indicates that Jesus pressed this point on to his disciples. Where he asked Philip, where should we buy bread for these people to eat. And it says that he asked him only to test him because he knew what he was going to do. The story continues by showing how Philip kind of assessed the situation from human perspective. And he said, hey, eight months wages couldn't be enough to buy this crowd, feed this, these people. And it's after this, after they put their heads together and they, be, they come and it, it, it tells us that they had five small barley loaves. I mean, that's kind of like the leftover bread that's two days. It's not a good piece of bread. It wasn't like, you know, fresh baked. Oh, look at this. Now, that's barley loaves. It's kind of like those things you buy in the, I think they sell them at Starbucks too. They look like a, just a brick or something, you know. They just, they just don't even look good. Oh, they're healthy. That's fine, you know. You can keep your health. I'll eat something that looks a little more tasty. Looks like you're eating a piece of dirt or something. Eight or five barley loaves here. And two small fish. And then Jesus takes this and he uses it to feed these people. They were helpless. They couldn't do anything. Um, that's kind of an important place for us to be spiritually. What a lesson for us to learn is to, to understand that we are helpless apart from Christ. I think of the words of Martin Luther when he said he was reflecting on our nothing. 
He said, our nothing really is nothing and not a little something. (laughs) Our nothing is really nothing and not a little something. See, sometimes as Christians, we think that somehow we bring to the table just a little something. Come on, God, give me credit for just a little bit. And God's saying, no. First of all, you didn't seek me out. I sought you out. And that was done before the foundation of the world ever got started. So I, you weren't even a glimmer in your mama's eye when I chose you to come to me. And yet somehow we, as Christians, we think, well, you know, my talent or my gifting or this, yeah, God uses me or, you know, boy, what would the church do without... And we begin to believe this stuff. Even though we have what God has first given to us, even though we can do nothing of spiritual value with it by ourselves, we do find it that it's useful and it's sufficient if we place it in the hands of Jesus. That's what happened. They brought these five loaves and two fishes. <laughs> okay, I don't know what else to do. This is it. Think about it. What did Moses have when God sent him to Pharaoh with the demand to let my people go? He had a stick. He had a staff. That's all he had. But when he gave it to God, God used it to perform miracles that led to the emancipation of God's people. Think of David. What did he have when he went up against Goliath? Great story in the Word of God. A sling and a couple small stones. I mean, this guy was a giant of a man. But you know what? Even those were enough when God was the missile guidance system for those little stones to go where he wanted them to go. What can you do for Jesus? What can you do for him? I mean, you know the answer just like I do. Nothing. Nothing at all. We can't do anything. But God has given us something that can be used effectively if you place it in the hands of Christ. Charles Spurgeon said this about his own preaching. And he was relating it to the matter of the loaves and the fish. Here's what he said. Truly he who writes this comment has often felt as if he had neither loaf nor fish. And yet for some 40 years and more, he has been a full-handed waiter at the king's great banquet. See, we need to stop and we need to recognize that there's something supernatural that happens in our lives as Christians. Really, we're helpless. We can't do this. But when we give our lives, our talents, our gifts, our desires over to Christ and we put them in his hands, boy, he can can make much of it. But as long as we're over here logically trying to figure out what we're going to do, and it's all about us, and, and we got our charts you know, set, and we're, our trips are on the way, and we're, we're doing everything possible to go the direction that we want to go. We need to stop sometimes and say, God, what do you want? What do you want from us? Because we got nothing. We don't have anything outside of Christ. So I encourage you, Being a helpless individual is not a bad thing. It's coming to the end of yourself. It's realizing that, you know what? You have a need that's so big that nobody could fill it. Who else can forgive your sin? Who else can save you from an eternity in hell? Only Christ. Only Christ. And we sit back and and we hesitate because we're, we're worried about, you know, giving something up or whatever. That's trivial. That's very trivial. And we need to stop, and we really need to go before God and ask 
and repent and say, Lord, you know what? Your word is true. We are a needy people. And that need is only met through Christ. Well, the third thing is the solution that Christ comes up with. In verses 18 to 19. The solution. Simple solution. No big deal here for Christ. Just like your problem is no big deal for him if you give it to him. He said to him, we have only five loaves and two fish. And he said, you know what, bring them here. (laughs) Bring them to me. When's the last time you brought your problem to him? And left it there. He said, you know what, God, this isn't my problem anymore. This is your problem now. You deal with it. Bring them to me, he says. Very simple. And then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. In other words, we know your folks are a little hungry, so you know that's kind of what they did. They'd sit when they'd eat. They were probably getting restless. Their stomachs are probably groaning, and they're thinking, okay, what are we going to do for food? Remember, they just kind of left on a whim. You know, oh, he's getting in a boat. Let's go. So now they're out in the middle of nowhere. They have nothing to eat. Sun's going down. Getting later in the day. He tells them to sit down. Commanded the people to sit down. Implies they're going to eat. Sitting down at the Lord's command requires faith on their part. Hey, it's getting late, man. I don't have time to sit here. I got kids, got family, got my wife here. We got to go back to town and get something to eat. They sat down, required faith. I mean, the entire miracle is based on faith. Simple solution, the source of the supply. God is the source, truly. That's where it came from. Some people say, well, how did this happen? It was called a miracle because it's a miracle. It wasn't like Jesus had, you know, a couple of trucks backed up. Okay, unload the bread, you know, behind the curtain and... You know, that's not how it worked. It was a miracle. He literally created this food for them out of the five loaves and two fish. That's probably not a big deal for him since he created everything anyway. In Psalm 103, verse 1 to 5, it says this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like eagles. God is the source of that. You're not going to find that in a pill or an exercise program or anything. God is the source here of this supply. And God, through Jesus, supplies all that we ever need. It speaks of, of Christ's sufficiency for us. So many times we're running everywhere but to Christ with our problems. Maybe we should stop and go to Christ first. And then maybe he will direct us to go to somewhere else. But maybe sometimes he'll meet our needs right there. Go directly to the source. You can't please the Lord without faith. It says that, Hebrews eleven six, Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Some of you today are at a point where you're in that seeking process. You're in that process where God is maybe drawing you and maybe you're putting up fences or maybe you're kind of uneasy about it. That's okay. But there comes a point in time where you've you got to get on the boat. You've got to commit. And that's only done by faith. If you ask God, he'll give you that faith. Because he is the source of it. It says, he commanded him to sit down on the grass. And he looked, and he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, acknowledging that, God, this is something that we're expecting you to do here through me. He blessed and he broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitudes. 
It doesn't tell us how this miracle happened. It's not like Jesus took the bread and he broke the bread and all of a sudden they were buried. You know, where'd they go? They're under all those loaves and under all those fish. I mean, I don't know. I, I have a tendency to believe that maybe they took what Jesus broke and put it in the basket and Jesus required the disciples to go by faith, start handing this stuff out. And when they started handing it out, it's just the basket never got empty. And even the people in the crowd are scratching their head going, man, you know, that's, that's not a real big basket. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people here and they, it just keeps coming. This is truly a miracle. God is the source of that miracle. He provides a sufficient supply. Christ is sufficient to meet all of our needs. We don't need to look anywhere else. We can't look anywhere else. We can't do anything in and of ourselves. John 15 says, If he remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Much fruit. Fruit that will last. See, so many times we have Christians today that you wonder if there's any fruit. Why is that? Because they're not looking for God to meet their needs. They're trying to figure it out on their own. They're trying to work their own logic and and move the pieces on the chessboard the way they think it makes sense. And God's saying, no, let me play the game. Give it over to me. I know better than you. I created you. I know everything about you. Just give it over to me. That's the heavenly solution that God wants from us. When you look at the abundance of this, it says, so they all ate. This is a lot of people. They all ate and were filled. That means they were filled, filled. (laughs) They were content. They were full. They couldn't eat anymore. You ever been that full? Good, we have some honest people here. You go to one of those buffet things. I don't do well at buffet. I never get my money's worth. You know, one trip and I'm full. That's just the way it works with me. Some of my nephews, man, they can just they can eat the place out of, you know, until it's all gone. I can't do that. So I got to be picky when I go up there what I'm going to get. You know, because you're usually paying a pretty good price at one of these buffet places. So I'm not going to go up and eat salad and you know all this green stuff that I can eat at home. I'm going to go right for the the roast beef or the 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 shrimp or the whatever that's the pricey things. You know, I'm going to eat gorge myself on those first. I'm going to fill up on those. These people were full; they couldn't eat anymore. And when you're sitting there at the table and you push the plate away. And somebody says, are you going to go back for dessert? And you go, oh, I don't know if I can. You know, I paid that price. I'm going to just go get something. And you go up and you shove one more piece of pie in or whatever. You're getting hungry, aren't you? I can tell. It's all right. That's what it means. They were full. They were content. And they were so content they didn't eat it all. They couldn't. See, that's the interesting thing. Some people... Ask about giving, about tithing, about offering, all these things. You know, and you always hear this said, you can't outgive God. You cannot outgive God. That doesn't mean you're going to be rich and prosperous and have money coming out of your ears. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that, you know what, he's not going to let you go hungry. He's going to meet your needs. He's going to take care of his own. He's, that's a promise in God's word. It says they all ate and were satisfied, and then the disciples had to clean up. They took the 12 baskets full of fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides the women and the children. A lot of people. What an incredible thing that happened. A sign that, you know what, this is who he says he is. He is the Christ. He can meet your needs. In Psalm twenty-two, twenty-six, it says, The poor will eat and be satisfied, and they who seek the Lord will praise Him. 
we need to remember that, that God is just waiting to meet our needs. He's waiting for us to come to Him in our helpless situation with a hungry heart. And then He's going to say, you know what? Here is an incredible blessing that you never even saw coming. But I'm going to bless you with this because of your faith. Because you were willing to come to me. And when you do that, He will truly minister to you. You know, sometimes you run across people who are just, you know, over the top, you call them needy, whatever. It's almost like they're a bottomless pit. You know, the more you, you just, you can't fill. It's just, it just keeps on coming. Problem after problem after problem after problem. And sometimes people just like to dwell on their problems. Sometimes people need to be told, you know what? Okay, stop. You take your problem to Christ. He is sufficient to meet your problem. That's what needs to happen sometimes. Maybe you're starving, you're miserable, you're abandoned, you feel alone, you, whatever. Take it to Christ. He will answer that need. And the last point there, the human agency. It's interesting to me that when I read this story, Jesus could have dealt with this problem a lot of different ways, right? God could have just, he could have looked to heaven and said, hey, they're hungry, feed them, God. And God could have rained down manna on them like he did before, right? Nobody had to move. They just opened their mouth like eating snowflakes and just ate their fill. That's not what he did. It shows me that God works through people. That's what he does. I mean, he was sufficient. Christ was sufficient to do this however he wanted. You know, he could have just snapped his fingers and everybody had their own loaf and, and two, two, two fish. Every family was fed. He could have just miraculously made their hunger go away. I mean, he could have handled this in so many different ways. But he didn't. He gave it to his disciples. They came back helpless with a little bit, broken you know, there's loaves and, and a couple fish. And out of that, a miracle was born. He used them to minister to the people. I mean, so many times... We need to be reminded that God uses people. That's why he gave us the great command. It says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded to you. And surely I'm going to be there with you always, until the end. There's a company called Service Master, and part of their company kind of vision and what they define management and they define management this way management is getting the right things done through other people management is getting the right things done through other people you know that's what jesus did here he used common everyday fishermen to take this bread and this these fish and distribute them to these people and they were part of the miracle They just didn't idly sit by and say, okay, Jesus, do your thing. You know, God wants to do something through you. He's gifted you. He's called you. He wants to do something incredible through you. Because he works through people. He wants to affect change in the peninsula here through our church as the message goes out from here. He wants to do that through people. We're to be distributors of God's blessing here on earth. I'll close with this poem. It says, I'm satisfied with Jesus. He has done so much for me. He has suffered to redeem me. He has died to set me free. When my work on earth is ended and I cross the mystic sea, Oh, that I could hear him saying, I am satisfied with thee. I am satisfied, I am satisfied, I am satisfied with Jesus. But the question comes to me as I think of Calvary. Is my master satisfied with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we pray that you prepare our hearts for our communion time together. And Lord, as we desire to continue in our worship, um, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts 
for these elements, this bread and this juice that we'll partake together as we remember your death and your sacrifice on Calvary for our sins. We, we practice here at, at Grace Bible Church an open communion. That means that all are invited to partake, those who know Christ um, personally, uh, are invited to partake. You don't have to be a member of this church or go here on a regular basis. If you know Jesus Christ, if you're part of his family, then feel free to partake of this. And if, if you don't know Jesus personally, then we would just ask that you would pass the plate to the next person. And it's not really an issue. It's just that you don't understand maybe what all this is all about personally. But it's never too late to cry out to him in faith. It's never too late to cry out to a holy God as a needful sinner. Be merciful to me. Lord, I feel you calling me. You've, you've, you've given evidence of that. But Lord, help me commit. Help me take that step that's needed to follow you in faith. Just as the people sat on the grass... And just as the disciples took that bread and those fish and handed it out, it's all an act of faith. Trusting in Christ as your Lord and Savior is, is definitely an act of faith. And he'll give you the faith to do it. You just, you just act on that. Cry out to him. Be merciful to me, a Savior, a sinner, and he'll, he'll save you. Father, we thank you for our time. We pray that you'd prepare our hearts now. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.